0: we don't even have time today for introduction to the show we're blowing that off so we can dive straight in it's friday the 22nd welcome thank you for being with us fantastic show today we have first up zach zalon he used to be president of virgin wow pretty cool working there with richard Branson. And quite a few years ago, went out and started Super Hi-Fi. It is a, believe it or not, radio company of all crazy things. He will be here with us in just a second. And then Jerry Newman will be with us. He is one of the top venture capitalists in New York and has written a new book. And so we will be discussing the honesty of venture capitalists. That should be a short conversation. That's not fair. Here he is to defend himself and I'm being mean. Defend the whole industry. Anyway, great book. Very excited for you to meet Jerry. So as I said, it's a cram-packed show. Let's go ahead and get started. My first guest is named Zach Zalen. He is the founder of a company called Super Hi-Fi. I'm not 100% sure. I'm really excited to learn. They take and build premium radio experiences. And since this is a radio show, I'm excited to understand. If they could help us and what the business does, Zach, welcome. How you doing?
1: Hey, I'm doing great. Thank you very much for having me today.
0: It is our pleasure. Cool name. The double Z. Uh, that's a bold name too. Your parents really went for it.
1: Yeah, they did. They, they, they've always had a really good sense of humor. And I, I-
0: uh, The first experience, did they go crazier or <laughs> mellow out with the rest of the kids' names?
1: No, I think they went pretty, uh, pretty basic. I think they tried it out with me and decided maybe they want to go a little bit more conventional.
0: Okay, I went Christian, Anna, William, and then for the fourth we ended up with a Tatum for the fourth. So, I yeah, well,
1: I, I I kept trying to name my daughters after uh, famous Lakers players, but but uh, their Why mom was having work? none of that. Nope. What about got Kareem?
0: Zalin that it works for me.
1: I kind of thought Jacobi would be beautiful. Just the combination of those two incredible players would make for an unbelievable child, but I had to do with pretty conventional names. So, well, they love me.
0: Tell us about super hi-fi. Exactly. What does it do? I don't understand yet.
1: So it's a technology platform, primarily consisting of artificial intelligence and a whole bunch of tools to control it that are really designed to transform the way that radio stations operate themselves in the future. Radio is an awesome, especially music radio. It's, it's amazing. It's a, uh, it's a fantastic medium. It's you know, certainly the most successful music experience medium that's ever existed. But the technologies that exist for broadcast radio are 35 years old for the most part. Radio doesn't get a lot of love as a technology. Uh, and radio is a diminishing form of entertainment for people. So it's not like you know, the hottest technologists in the world are racing towards radio to do something about it. we want to do something about it we see radio as something that has not only the opportunity to survive for longer than people give it credit for but in fact a real chance to thrive it just has to change the the other thing is is that with radio companies most of them have consolidated over the past 20 or 30 years and as a part of that consolidation they took on a lot of debt right they borrowed a lot of money from banks to be able to pay for their consolidation and then the way that they paid that money back was by firing a ton of really great radio talent in order to save money so that they could pay the banks back. And what ended up happening is you ended up with a lot of very basic music radio experiences now. They just aren't great anymore. Um, now, I'm in Los Angeles where the radio stations are you know, amongst the best in the world. Right? We have Kiss FM, the number one revenue-generating radio station in the world. We have K-Rock, or the, most, uh, the most influential alternative station in history but drive 15 minutes outside of Los Angeles and you are not going to hear that level of quality. And we think that part of the challenge is is that the just technology hasn't existed up until now for those radio stations to deliver a world-class listening experience without having to spend more money than they actually have at their disposal. So we're there to transform the whole thing soup to nuts. All
0: right. So right now the music radio station, uh, some still have records, some still have CDs, some play purely audio files. I've experienced all of them. I, I, my experience has been in the mostly in the non consolidated, uh, stations and they are just incredibly profitable. From my understanding, they, the average station that's not owned by one of the big, big guys does a million dollars a year. And is somewhere between 50 and 60% profit margin? And it's an amazing business. I think that's right. Uh,
1: Yeah, it certainly can be.
0: Yes, if done well. And if done well, my understanding that it's live and local. Live and local
1: really, really matter, but they matter less and less to consumers and they matter less and less to advertisers. And the pressure is on for radio companies, big and small, to be able to find new innovative ways of creating entertainment that draws in new listeners, that draws in younger listeners, and that attracts advertisers. That is more and more of a challenge every single year. The reality is is that without really advanced technology, like in any industry, without advanced technology that's there to support all of their needs, they're gonna have more and more challenges every year. And the reality is that million dollars is gonna drop to a half million dollars and that margin is gonna drop to 10% instead of 50%. And a lot of radio companies are gonna start handing their licenses back to the FCC. We wanna help stave that off. In addition, So much listening is happening online today, not over the air. Even a broadcast radio station, in many cases, it's just rebroadcasting online. It's being consumed on somebody's phone, not on an FM dial. How are radio stations, profitable or not, going to be able to create compelling online experiences that consumers actually want to listen to? My kids, they don't listen to radio anymore. They listen to Spotify or Apple Music. Those And in fact, they listen to both. How are radio companies going to compete with that? They need advanced tools and they need the right kind of vision and support to be able to do it. That's why we set up Super Hi-Fi in the first place. We really believe strongly in radio. We think radio companies have not only an opportunity, but have the legacy to be able to create tomorrow's better sounding experiences. They just need a bridge to be able to get there. And that's what we've been investing in.
0: So we all... Remember the, some movie that we've seen a disc jockey sitting there playing music, right? And that might be Good Morning Vietnam or American Graffiti or something, right? What is, how does your state or your platform change that, right? So is it hardware, software, Is what does it end up looking like? What do you actually do, you know, in terms All of... Right the schedule and stuff.
1: So for those that are old enough to remember this, probably the best example of how a radio station operates is the sitcom WKRP in Cincinnati. Love it. Okay. So you remember Johnny fever was that DJ was super cool. He's sitting there. He's spinning discs. He's it's, it's all hand done. You know, you're going from one song to another song. He's going to crack a microphone and talk over the song. He's going to mix the two songs together so that two record players are kind of like the volumes going down on one while it's going up on the other. It's a real art form, actually, right? And they're going to talk until they hit the post. That's the part where the singing starts, right? And they're going to get out right at the right moment. And then they're going to cheer when they do it because it's actually pretty hard to do that. All right. That is, that is the quintessential artistic radio experience that you kind of like envision as a scene in your head. Right. Yep. The, Okay, that scene doesn't exist anymore, man. That's, that, that scene is as distant as that show is. And whoever is young enough not to remember that show is also young enough not to have ever seen that kind of radio experience firsthand unless maybe they're at some super cool college radio station that just wants to try to do things the old artisanal way. What ended up happening technically is in, about, in, a, in like 1995, when Windows 95 came out, there were some really clever software companies that realized that you could automate a lot of those things. Here's a good example. You could take two songs, and instead of spinning one up on, on the record player and the other up down on the other record player, they could automate it so you could actually align the waveforms of digital music files so that it kind of sounds exactly the same as they cross-fade into each other, but you're doing it manually. You can listen to it, kind of get it right, And, you know, if you get it wrong, you just move it around. And that happens in advance of it playing. There's no art in that. That's just machinery, right? It's a human moving a waveform against another waveform. How about the talking? How about that DJ, right? They're jumping on the mic and they're really excited. They're talking about the song you just heard. Maybe they're talking about the weather. They're talking about something current. They're talking into the new song and they're getting out of the post, as I talked about a minute ago. Now, that's all automated too. What radio stations started doing is called voice tracking. They pre-record the voice, they move it into this automation system, and then they manually adjust it so that it hits the post, and then they move on to the next one. And all these things are pre-lined up in a Windows machine for hours at a time or days at a time. That's how radio works today. It's a cut-and-paste world where humans adjust the transition moments between songs to sound just like it did on WKRP in Cincinnati, but without having to have any of the artistic qualities or the experience that was necessary to make it awesome back then. That's been happening since 1995. And that kind of cut and copy and paste experience in radio has kind of proliferated completely all the way from the smallest radio stations all the way up to the biggest conglomerates. That's how it's operated. That's what radio is today. And as a byproduct of that, because those software tools are so limited, because they were all written for Windows 95, there's only so much you could do with them. There's only so much you can ask of it. Those tools have not evolved for over 30 years. They haven't had to because they do exactly what radio stations have needed, but they haven't evolved. There's nothing innovative, nothing interesting, nothing fancy, nothing fun, nothing fast, nothing new. Okay,
0: is that making sense so far? Yes. And for our listeners, is it safe to say, Zach, that we could just sort of say it's just like using GarageBand or iMovie or any of the movie products to make your own movies these days? And you move the little things around and you want the sound to go up here. So you, you know, raise the sound line.
1: It's- That's it. Yeah. That's basically it. Right. iMovie is an excellent example. Actually, GarageBand is probably more flexible. iMovie is very limited, right? It lets you do certain things and then it kind of just, it, it's going to do it the same way kind of every time, right? How many different transition effects are you going to have? You're going to have the dissolve or you're going to have the, the screen wipe transition effect? You get a few things you get to do and that's kind of it. The rest is automated. That's the way that it works in radio today. That's one of the reasons why. Radio stations, for the most part, sound and feel the same no matter where you go because they are a function of the technology that powers them. Additionally, a lot of that creative art, that's dead. They've either been fired because companies consolidated and needed to save money or they retired because nobody needed them anymore. And so they went off to, you know, to play golf instead of to do awesome radio. All right, that's the state of things today in radio. And in that world, when you have an Apple Music or a Spotify who are investing a billion dollars in R&D, are global, and are trying to figure out new innovative ways of offering things to people, it's almost impossible to compete. And that's why Spotify continues to grow and grow and grow, and radio continues to shrink and shrink and shrink. All right, here's what we do that's different. We see that there's an opportunity to reinvigorate radio and to automate even more, but to offer a lot more flexibility than what's been on tap for the past 30 years. And the way to do that is to use the most sophisticated new tools that any company could possibly have at their disposal. And those tools, that's artificial intelligence. What we've done is built a proprietary layer of AI that uses machine learning to figure out exactly how radio programmers artistically produced their experiences over the past 35 years and how they programmed and sequenced that music over the past 35 or 40 years so that you could start doing in AI what used to take humans hours to do, even in one of those limited automation tools. Our theory is if you're going to automate, you may as well automate all the way. You may as well hand the, the, the process over to an AI that does a, a job that's better and faster and less expensive than a human so the humans can get back to doing what they really should be doing, not aligning waveforms in an old-fashioned Windows machine or an automation system. No, 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 no. That could be done in AI instantaneously. What they should be doing is coming up with more compelling entertainment experiences So that my kids might actually want to listen to a radio station so that they can start differentiating from one another so that they could start attracting advertisers more effectively and so that the industry can ultimately move online in a more natural way. Without AI, that doesn't exist. Radio will die. We're here to make sure that it doesn't. That's what we're investing in.
0: Very interesting. So... Again, to continue our analogy, it's sort of like you said, here are the seven clips from our vacation to Disney, and here are six pictures that I took that we really want to use, and we want the whole thing set to Disney theme music, and boom, out pops the entire edited movie with sound and fades and cool pictures and all of that done automatically by AI. It, it does the that's, analogy that I do it.
1: You're so good at that, man. Thank you, by the way, for doing that. It actually helps me, you know, I obviously I deal with the details all day. So for you to say that is actually really, really helpful. Yeah. Let me add something to that. So that's exactly right. You're going to let's a add check,
0: a right? Now. It's every time so you use powerful. That, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely, man. That's royalties. It, think, think about this though. Here's another piece. Okay. Yes, it does that. Exactly. It does that. But, now imagine that the person who's putting that together, because the AI is so powerful, that person now has more creative and stylistic choice. They could say, hey, here's all, the, here's all the clips. Here's the music I want to use. Here's all the pictures that I took. I want this to be a humorous output that makes
0: people laugh.
1: Or, hey, no, no, no. I want it to be whimsical so that it feels like a family experience. More or, like hey, Francis I want Ford it to Coppola. feel sad. I want it
0: to be like Francis Ford Coppola directed it. Oh, I
1: love it Imagine this. that. Imagine that the editing choices that it makes, the transition choices between cutscenes that it makes, the music that it selects, the pacing that it selects, the tone and timbre of the, the or the color, uh, the color choices that it makes and mastering it. All of these things have a subtle change in how you mix editing um, decisions can make massive changes to how people perceive the experience. That's why movies can evoke really well edited and well done movies can evoke such powerful emotions because a great director and a great editor know how to pull that out in the process. What if AI could do that? That's exactly what we're talking about. We're just talking about it for radio. How do you want to sound and feel? You can get really, really granular. I want this modern rock station to feel super punchy and powerful with a lot of energy. I want, however, at lunchtime, I want the energy to go up because maybe people are coming back groggy because they ate too much or had too many beers. And then at 2 p.m., I want it to kind of mellow back out a little bit. And at at 10 o'clock at night, I want it to be all mellow music until in the morning. We have the ability to now craft those like sculpting tools because the AI understands everything about how radio is constructed, how radio is produced, and how radio is delivered. So now I can start thinking like an artist rather than a computer programmer that has to sit there figuring out how to align waveforms, none of that stuff is necessary anymore. The AI does it, And I'm going to share this with you, man. It not only does it, it does it in milliseconds, and it does it commercially today 2 billion times a month. Meaning, there's a ton of radio-like stuff that you listen to out there in the ecosystem that lots of big companies suggest might be you know, an artful human, but they're actually using our artificial intelligence to do all of it. So in addition to being this idea that we have, it's also something that's actually really successful now and continues to grow pretty dramatically in the ecosystem, both online and on air. So it's working. That's my point. It actually, this really works, is working today, and there are a lot of companies that are starting to benefit from it. So it's not just an idea. It's not just a vision. It's not just a hope. It's something that we've actually been able to pressure test and get out into the market and have some real success in, um, in, uh, in driving.
0: You know, and Zach, you just sort of validated, you're trying to say, Hey, it's working right. I was sort of thinking the same thing because this seems, you know, a little bit out there, I will let you listeners know the company is over five years old now, and we'll have him give us an entrepreneurial history in just a second. But I think that I left out a little of your pedigree that would help validate too. You were president of Virgin for God's sakes. You were the guy yeah, that took so, Virgin digital for God's sakes, you know? And so with I mean, that kind of a pedigree makes super high by seeing much more plaz- uh, plausible and actual. So that's how I was going to validate it. Give it a little more bio on you.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I've been doing music and digital music for many, many years. Um, yeah, my team and I, many of the same people that are with me today at Super High, were word Virgin with me. Um, when we left Virgin, we left Virgin when, when Richard Branson started selling off the mega stores. Um, for those that remember, the mega stores were kind of the biggest, boldest music retail stores in the world. Oh, they were great. Um, they That's were fantastic. The Had hundred, hundreds of them around the world. Uh, really, really successful. But uh, ultimately, Richard Branson's a really smart guy and he's willing to. He, he, he doesn't see, he's not tr- he never tries to kind of hold on for anything for too long. He just doesn't think it's necessary. And even though he built his entire business around those retail stores and his record label, he saw the writing on the wall. And when he saw the writing on the wall, we did too. Uh, so we started a, a, a technology development and agent and digital agency shop that did for other companies what we had been doing for Branson for you know, seven plus years. And that was a pretty incredible opportunity. So we built all kinds of digital music services for lots of companies, CBS Radio, AOL Radio, Yahoo Launchcast. back when those were brands that really mattered. We built one of the first main music subscription services in the world called Move Music for a company called Cricket Wireless. But in addition, we were brought in to do massive digital consumer services. So we built all the digital diabetes management platforms for Johnson & Johnson, uh, all the global apps for National Geographic, that incredible Incredible brand. That was a lot of fun. We built, you know, apps for the Knicks and the Rangers and Madison Square Garden. Uh, new services for Citibank and Experian. Many, many, many large, you know, huge platforms for uh, for consumer product companies. We learned a lot in doing that. Now, for us, music has always been our passion. Music's always been our love. And so, at some point, we really wanted to get back to that. When we came back to it, though, we came back to it with a different perspective than we kind of left music. Like when we left, I think if we had left Virgin and decided to do this, we would have gone out, we would have raised a bunch of money from venture capitalists, and we would have tried to figure out what we were doing. Um, and we probably would not have succeeded. The technology wasn't ready when we first left Virgin. The um, our, our kind of knowledge of what consumer services were really like, just we, we weren't sophisticated enough. We didn't have enough experience with large corporations, You know, then having worked for so many Fortune 500s building up their digital platforms, we learned a lot of that stuff. And so when we came back to this, we were ready and we did it different. The thing that we did different was we decided not to take outside capital. We knew that this would be a really expensive venture, but we felt confident enough to be able to build the first prototypes on our own with our own funding. So that we could actually go out there and test to make sure that what we were building was something that people actually wanted. And if it wasn't something that they wanted, we were ready to change it. And if it was, we were ready to double down. There's a really great book. And for anybody that's thinking about starting their own business, I strongly suggest reading it. It's called The Four Steps to the Epiphany. It's by a professor, uh, Stephen Gary Blank at Stanford. And it, it seems so simple when I say it this way, but it actually requires a book. And this book, by the way, has become sort of like the gold standard for a lot of entrepreneurs that are starting up businesses. The basic idea is to come up with a proposition for what you want your business to be. What's your product? What are you going to sell? How are you going to sell it, et cetera? And then get out of your office and go meet with your potential customers and ask if they want it. And if they do, you know you're onto something. And if they don't, you better go back and figure out what they want and that process of actually getting out of the office going and talking to people pressure testing your idea in the real world before you go too far that's that's the secret to being able to build a business that somebody actually that 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 you could sell stuff from and that ultimately you can grow value with and so that's what we did we started to build this we had a hypothesis we built the first prototype so that they actually worked so it wasn't just vaporware and we got out of the office and started to talk to people about whether or not they wanted to buy it. And as it turns out, they did.
0: No so changes us, needed. we were able to do this. What's that? No changes needed? First well, there's always
1: changes. Absolutely, absolutely a thousand changes, right? So you're, you're always kind of shifting back and forth a little bit. And I'll talk about that more in a minute because it's some, a perspective that I've really gotten over the past number of years that I think is, is worth sharing. But what I'll share is that no, at first, no. We went out there and we had a really strong perspective of what this was going to be. It was really different. You know, an automated production AI had never really existed in this way. We're talking to radio companies who've been doing things the, the same way for 30 years. Um, we got a lot of people that were like, we don't understand what the hell this is, but we got enough people to say, hey, I really like this. And in fact, our first customer was iHeart, largest radio company in the world. Wow. And that was incredible for us because first it validated... That what we're doing is interesting enough that large companies might be uh, might be willing to write a check. The second thing is it gave us tremendous credibility, right? So it's like, oh, we power iHeart is a lot better than you know saying I power you know the small market radio station down the b- block in you know uh, in Kentucky. No offense to Kentucky, but just that's you know it's just not going to be as credible. The third thing is the amount of pressure that they put on us by having some of their top tier people actually listening to our production AI helped us to also fix anything that we weren't doing right. We basically had the best ears in the radio business sitting there, you know, quality assuring our product. So that by the time that it went live with them, it was really robust. And that's what we were able to then go out and sell to others. So we were really fortunate.
0: Where are you now in terms of market penetration? Uh, I don't know how you measure or validate yourself right uh or are you doing it on number of employees number of stations across the country uh millions of dollars how do you uh kpi yourself
1: uh so there's a host of things i'm actually going to back up i'm going to ask i'm going to answer the last question that you asked before this and then i'll answer that one specifically because i think that this is a perspective that's worth sharing you asked about making changes I I was told by a really, really successful friend some number of years ago that like when you want to be really successful, when you're trying to get to a place in your business and you kind of, let's say you're like on the water in a sailboat and you see an island in the distance and the island is your destination. The natural, your natural instinct is to point your sailboat in the direction of the island and go. But that's not, not actually the way that it works because on the ocean, the winds blow back and forth. And so what you end up doing is you end up having to tack your boat back and forth until you get to the island. At any moment, it might actually look like you're facing in the entirely wrong direction. But that's only because that's how you're capturing the wind in order to move forward. And that metaphor really sits well with me. So when you ask the question, like, have we made changes? It's like, oh, my God, they're endless and constant, right? We're learning new things every single day. If I can speak with three either customers or prospective customers in a day, I will leave with three lessons at the end of that day. And that's just one day. Because everybody's going to have a different need, or maybe somebody is going to view what we're doing from a different perspective that I hadn't thought of before. And with each one of those lessons, it gives us an opportunity to start to kind of organize those into buckets of priority. And those lessons that we learn from our customers or our future customers, drives almost 100% now of the decision-making that we make. It's like we will be able to tell that there is this intersection of ideas, perspectives, or needs if we just keep talking to people. And if we write those down and then we go and create new, innovative, awesome, novel ways of solving them, we have more customers in the future. So I just wanted to share that with you because you asked the question. I don't feel like I answered it sufficiently. Now to your second question, how how do we measure ourselves? Well, the first thing is is that we're really, really successful in the online space today. So we power a huge number of online partners. And I can't mention some of them, but some I can. So Peloton, their fitness experiences, and their Peloton radio experience, Sonos and all the Sonos radio experience. Like you pull a Sonos device out of a box and you plug it in the wall, and they've got 165 world-class radio stations that are built right into the Sonos system. And you can go and use Spotify and Apple and others, but if you want to just listen to the Sonos radio system, it's right in there and it's free. We power all that. Uh, we, are, we are powering all kinds of other services, many of which we can't actually talk about just from, from the perspective of, of confidential stuff. But it, it, we, we've really grown in the online space. We're really, really happy with it. Um, we've grown to the point where Inc. Magazine just uh, announced that we were one of the top 250 fastest growing companies in, in the entire Southern California region. This is one of the most competitive regions in the world for business growth. So we're really, really happy to hear that. For a company that has such a niche product like ours, we're really pleased with that. In the radio space, different story. It's very slow, and we've always expected it to be that. Getting into radio companies that have been doing the same thing for 30 years, it takes a long time. And there's a lot of fear around what it could mean when you transform your radio operations to that degree. But here's why we think ultimately we're going to be able to tell a different story in a couple of years about the speed of our growth in the radios, in the FM and AM space. Is because our customer, on average, saves 50% on their music radio operations when they use super hi-fi. Not 5%, not 10%, 50%, and that's an average. Now, what we found is, and this is the great part, it's not like they just go and get rid of 50% of their team. It's that they have so much more time, so much less complexity, and so much more money to spend on compelling new content so that they can grow their listening base and generate more revenue. That combination is a pretty compelling story it's a factual one. And over time, the facts just, they're, they're, they're undeniably strong. And we think that it, at some point, it becomes a very kind of obvious thing that people are going to want to use that to save that kind of money and generate new experiences. So for us, that, that's another aspect of kind of where we're going. And I'll tell you, you ask what are our KPIs? They're a little different, I think, than many companies. All we care about is that we have really satisfied customers. That's it. Right now, it's not how fast we're growing, it's how fast we're satisfying the needs that our customers have. Because if we've got a customer that is
0: super
1: satisfied with what we're doing, if they're totally blown away by what we're doing, they're going to be our best spokesperson for growth in the future. So every time we satisfy a customer, every time a customer is happy with what we're doing or blown away by a new technology that we're offering them, they are going to be the mechanism that drives the next level of growth for us. And so we're just planting the seeds of growth every single time we make those decisions. Does that make sense?
0: Yes. And unfortunately, Zach, we're out of time. You are so easy to interview. You just wind you up and you go. I interviewed one of the station owners from one of the stations that we're on, right? And he owns five or six different stations in the Ozark Lakes area. And I have to think that this would be interesting to him. He's the guy I got some of those numbers from, you know, he's his stations do a million and make 500,000, but his problem is the live local, which means that he has to have someone there and he's having trouble finding that person, you know, it could very well be one or two people who run that whole station and he's having trouble finding even that. And so if you could take you know, 50%, you say they say 50%, let's just assume it's a 50% time savings as well. He's going to be ecstatic static because now all of a sudden that HR issue becomes less pressing for him. So that's right. Um, and
1: it, 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 it is to, to us, this is the way that it's going. And I, you know, speaking to station owners, like we speak to station owners like that all the time they are having challenges. That he is not alone in those challenges. He has a really nice business that he wants to protect and preserve. But the pressures are on, and the industry is changing around him. We're there to try and help companies like that to be able to stave off the kinds of declines that radio will ultimately see and help them move online when ultimately that does happen in a way that helps them to preserve and protect their assets.
0: Zach, how do we find more about you, follow you online, learn more about the business? Learn more about
1: the business. Just go to superhifi.com, S-U-P-E-R-H-I-F-I.com. Uh, that's where we, that's where we pretty much do everything. And if you want to follow me directly, my really only social media network connection is on LinkedIn.
0: Fantastic. Zach, thank you so much for being with us. Great, great, uh, story, really amazing technology. I can't wait to see you take over the world
1: in (laughs) both
0: digitally and in just the good old stations.
1: Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed being on today.
0: Oh, it's our pleasure. And we will be right back. Bye. 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 We are back in again. Thank you so much for being with us. Very excited to introduce a great guest, someone who's really going to help us understand more about this entrepreneurial conversation. Please welcome Jerry Newman to the show. He has been an early stage investor for more than 25 years. He is also a very active advisor. New York, uh, I'm sorry. Business insider has called him one of the 50 most important VCs in New York. He is also an instructor or some sort of teacher. I don't know what doesn't say exactly what his title is, which, you know, in academia is super important at Columbia, which is the important thing. And he is author of a new book called founder versus investor, the honest truth about venture capital from startup to IPO. Jerry, welcome to the show. How are you doing?
2: Thanks, Jim. Glad to be here. You don't, you're you
0: not a PhD, are you?
2: I'm not. I'm an okay, adjunct good. professor Phew. at Columbia. Yeah. Thank
0: goodness.
2: <laughs> no, they, they decided to bring in somebody who's had some real-world experience to teach entrepreneurship to the undergrads.
0: Yes. <laughs> it's like having someone to teach surgery who's never been in an operating room before, so I'm glad... I used to teach at Georgia State University and when I was eventually replaced, I was replaced Jerry by a PhD who had never started a business. He did though spend 15 years studying and proving. Get this, get ready. Sitting down I hope, that early stage entrepreneurs need connections a lot. But as their later stage entrepreneurs Connections aren't quite as important. That by then there's something else. He spent 15 years on that. But I agree with him. Uh, who doesn't? Everyone does. <laughs> Everyone knew it. So my my three year old knows that. Now they have proof. Now they proved it. Yes. Another thing yeah. my three year old knows is that venture capital is bad. Venture capital bad, daddy.
2: You know, I, I hear that a lot. I hear that a lot. But is it? I mean, people keep taking it.
0: Yeah, some people do. But a lot of people also swear it off, like, you know, vitamins and stuff.
2: I, I look at it, you know, I, I'm not going to push venture capital. I, uh, I think venture capital has done a great thing in this country by funding the biggest companies that we have. But I always tell founders, don't take it unless you absolutely have to have it.
0: Yes. Well, why is that? Why, uh, why isn't it more attractive from the very beginning? What's the stereotype to make us think that?
2: So if you take my money, you're bringing me on as a partner in your business. I'm not lending you the money. I'm not, I'm not a bank. I'm not a public investor, you know, buying shares and then waiting to see what you do because I can just sell them. I can't sell my shares. If I buy shares in your company, I have to hold them until you build a company big enough that somebody else wants to buy, or if you go public. So I need to be involved in your business to make sure that you're spending my money in a way that's going to eventually get me a return. So if you don't want a partner, you know,
0: and so many entrepreneurs make the counter argument, uh, yeah, but you're the reason we're not making money, or your ideas, or your meddling in uh, our business. Certainly, the entrepreneurial response, stereotypically, Jerry, is that the investors don't come with another motive. But uh, maybe, how do I say this without getting in trouble with some of my friends? <laughs> Just say it. Uh, you know, they're just not nice people. They come in and, and that you give a 1% opening and they're going to try to take over a hundred percent.
2: You know, that may be true with some people. And, and I think, you know, one of the things that we talk about a lot in the book is getting to know the people you're going to be working with for the next 10 years before you sign a contract with them, which just makes good sense. Right. But, but I think, you know, in general, you, you, you hear the horror stories about investors, you never hear the horror stories about founders, of course, but you hear the horror stories about investors because people like to tell those stories. But it doesn't make sense that venture capitalists would go into venture because they want to screw founders. right? That's, there are easier ways to make money than venture capital if you want to be a financier. Go to a hedge fund, go into real estate. You know, real estate people have sharp elbows. If you have sharp elbows, you'll probably make more money in real estate than venture capital. I think people in venture capital want to help founders in general. Some of them are just bad at it. So you got to find the people who are good at it, who can actually help you, not hurt you.
0: That's a great point. And how do you know if they're bad at it, if they do it well? Ask other people they've invested in?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, I think this is something that everybody should do. And I always tell people to do it when I'm talking to them about investing. Look, here's a list of everybody I've ever invested in. Go find them. Call them up. Ask them about me. Some of these people don't like me. You may call those people and they'll say they don't like me. That's just how it is. But, you know, you should make a decision based on who I am, how I act, how I make decisions, how I help or don't help. I mean, you should know, right? And I think that's, you know, I'm proud of my record, so I'm happy to do that. But most VCs will do that. And if they won't, then that may be a problem.
0: Yes. The very, very first time jerry that i was ever looking for capital raising money uh 99 or so and we found someone who solved our number one problem uh, which was access to free technology and a lot of computers we needed lots of computers and he could get us thousands of them and We started doing business with him and got to know him and spent time together and went out drinking and all of these things that you should do and invited him to visit Atlanta from California. And one of the things we discovered, Jerry, that there are no nice cars in Atlanta. He had to bring a car with him (laughs) from California. And we invited him to dinner and I was still a young man at this point in my Mid twenties, my business partner was the same age. And so we invited our business savvy parents and the six of us went to dinner, including him. And we went to a, uh, tie, you know, he's supposed to wear a tie restaurant, fairly conservative place. He wore a black t-shirt and blew off the dress code after gunning the engine in the foyer, not the foyer, but the porte cochere with his Ferrari. He brought a Ferrari to town, Jerry. Um, after dinner, the six of us went around the table and voted. Do we trust this man? Yes or no. And every single one of us voted no. However, he had just delivered $5 million of free computers to us. And we went around the table again and said, do we go into business with this man? Yes or no. And every one of us voted yes.
2: See, I think that was the wrong decision. I went, I don't know how it turned out, but,
0: He brought us $5 million of free computers, Jerry. Sure. We wanted to walk into Paul Allen's office. We'd walked right into Paul Allen's office without an appointment. Paul was pissed, but we walked in without
2: an appointment. So he didn't give you $5 million of free computers. He gave your company $5 million of free computers. Yes. yes. And there's a crucial difference here, right? Because... Just because your company has all those computers doesn't mean that you, in the end, are part of your company. And this is what you need to be able to trust that the person you're working with is going to be able to support you when they can or help you rise to the occasion when you aren't able to. Because what good is it to you if your company has $5 million of computers and
0: you don't have a job? Strangely, that's one of the things he never tried to do: is take us out. Uh, What do you do when things go bad? What do you do when you have your first inclination that this date isn't going well?
2: What do I do? No, so I'm an investor, right? Right.
0: Uh, We've already okay. Well, from both sides, Uh, I'm thinking from the entrepreneurial side, but we've already invested. You and I have already signed documents, and we're going out to dinner, and dinner is not going well. It's it's obvious we're not agreeing on the, the color for the lobby and it's a make or break issue. And so what do we do?
2: Well, I, I think it's we can. more important
0: than the color of the lobby.
2: Yeah, understood. Um, you know, I think this is the, the reason people tend to disagree on these things is because they have different motivations, right? So we may disagree on the color of the lobby, but in the end, as an investor, hopefully I'll say it just doesn't matter. Right, it's not going to make a difference to me to my return on investment here. What color your lobby is, unless it does, and if it does, then I need to try to tell you why it does and why I know it does, uh, and try to convince you that it should be different. Now, it may be that you don't care about my return on investment, and in that case, we've got a problem because when I invested, I think I, I hope I made it clear that. This is my job. I invest money. I hope to make money. If I don't make money, I won't be able to keep my job. So, you know, in that case, I hope we're on the same page. But, you know, it's different when you're in a founder seat, right? So I need to understand where you're coming from. And hopefully you need to understand where I'm coming from. It's not just about money, but it needs to to be reasonable choices that meet my goals as well as your own.
0: What do you think... And, you know, these are of course famous stories at this point. What do you think about some of the famous entrepreneurs that have blown up a bunch of your money in uh, your, I'm using in the Royal figurative sense, say this, <laughs> Adam new What's the yep. guy's
2: name? Um, he's Adam Newman. Unfortunately, same last name as me. That's what no, I was thinking. No yeah. That's what confused yeah. <laughs> me.
0: Is that your son or your, your brother? No,
2: no, no relation.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know, some good names have been spoiled now, you know, no one can be an Epstein anymore. Um, <laughs> right. Okay. But this guy early on, it became obvious that he's a kooka noodle. How about that? Can we go there? And if I were an investor and he were comparing himself to Jesus or having a party that cost $3 million or, you know, there's a lot of things early on that would have made me go good grief. This is bad Uber guy too. What are your thoughts on some of these movies that I'm watching?
2: Well, so I wouldn't have invested in either. I had a chance to invest in one of them. Uh, and unfortunately, I had the chance to invest in the one that would have made me much wealthier than I am today, Uber. Um, but I didn't because it, he didn't seem like the kind of person I wanted to invest in. Now, that was really early in the company's life. You know, there was no other real data. Um, and pl- you know everybody, everybody I know passed on it except for one person who then made the Midas list, the list of the best capitalists in the country. The thing is, y- you only need one, right? You only need to have a few VCs invest. And in the end, it, it's if you are a company that is promising a big outcome, if you have a big vision, you're promising a big outcome. Somebody's going to take the risk, and overall, you know, historically, taking those risks has paid off. So there's certainly an incentive on the VC side to overlook whether or not the founder is going to have a tight grip on operations, is going to act ethically if there is the possibility of a huge outcome. But not every venture capitalist does that. I mean, you have to remember there are thousands of venture capitalists in this country. It's not regulated in any way. Um, Anybody can call themselves a venture capitalist. And you have companies like Theranos where it was venture capital backed, but the people who invested weren't professional venture capitalists. They were just people who were giving her money. Um, So, you know, I personally, what I advocate for in the book is If you're gonna invest, you have to do it right. You have to invest in people who are going to act ethically, obviously, but you also have to sit on the board. You have to have governance of the company. I think it's too easy, especially in really frothy times um, to sit back and be like, all right, well, we can't criticize the founder because they are making us money. And that's, you know, it may just be a consequence of the environment, not of their actions themselves.
0: You used one of my favorite words, frothy. It's right up there with veritable plethora and a whole bunch of others uh, that I just love. We should have a sound for them or something. <laughs> frothy. Uh, are we frothy right now? I felt like we were, and I feel like we've backed off of that a little bit. And. Now the deals are not getting done. Maybe there's a little bit of Silicon Valley residual left over. Um, What are your thoughts on where we are as a market right now?
2: I was talking to another venture capitalist this morning and he called 2021 a bubble. So that's, you know, something venture capitalists almost never say, oh, we're in a bubble. Uh, And maybe they only say it in retrospect, but 2021
0: or 2023,
2: 2021. So before the fed started raising interest rates. Okay. People were paying really any price you wanted. Even into 2022, you had company, you know, firms like tiger saying, Hey, you want money? We like you. You've had good venture capitalists invest previously. We're going to give you money. We don't need to really do due diligence. We don't need a board seat. We don't need any sort of governance at all. And that seems to have blown up in their face. Um, But it affected everybody else as well, because if you were a professional investor you have money, you, you know, your, your job is to invest other people's money. You can't just sit around and look at it and be like, I'm, I'm not gonna do that. So when you have somebody come in like that, or there are several companies like that, not to put the, you know, point the finger, only a tiger, um, then everybody else is forced to pay more as well if they wanna keep playing. So yeah, it was definitely, it was frothy. I, I don't think it's, that's true now. I know it's not true now. Um, you know, I have invested in companies that raised money a couple of years ago, trying to raise more money now, it's not the same environment. It's not that easy.
0: How do I get your money, Jerry? Well, What are the things that make you dig into your checkbook?
2: So I am a zero-stage investor. I used to be an early-stage investor and then a seed stage and then a pre-seed. And now I say I'm a zero-stage. I invest when people have an idea, right? So the very earliest money put into a company. So I am very picky. Um, it has to be an idea where... Not that I can add value, an idea that I understand. I understand the market, I understand the customers, I understand the technology, it's something that I can evaluate. Um, so I'm pretty you know pretty focused around business to business, enterprise software. that that's what I know. Um, if you're doing something else, I'm not going to invest. Um, I prefer companies that are local, as you know investors probably should, so that they can sit down and actually see the founder face to face. And I look for valuations that aren't crazy. Um, so those are kind of the, the, the basic, you know, you can't get around that. Those are the things that have to be for me. After that, it's really, I'm looking at the founder, right? Because at, at my stage, there's nothing but the founder. So, or the, or the co-founders, who are they? Can, do I think that when times get tough, they can keep going? Do I feel like... They will go down the correct path, and if the, that path turns out not to be correct, they'll choose a different path. You know, they're, are they flexible in that way, the way they think? These are the kind of things I'm trying to evaluate for.
0: What if uh, an entrepreneur comes in and says, you should invest because we're going to listen to you, and if you give us advice, we're going to take it?
2: Absolutely not. <laughs> if if I could run a company better than that, who, look at the, they said what well, you even,
0: wanted to hear. They're going to take your advice. They're, they, but they, no,
2: but I, I don't want to run the company. I want them to run the company.
0: Oh, we're going to run it. But you know, if you have advice, we're listening. We're good listeners. Yeah. We're really good at listening, and we're going to do. You know, we're going to take your advice.
2: So usually during the whole process, they'll they'll bring up something I don't agree with. They'll, they'll say something like, "We think customers want this or whatever," and. And I'll say, I don't agree with you. And I want to see what they do, right? If they're like, oh, okay, you're right. Then I'm like, all right. If they're going to just agree to things that people say who are clearly no less about the market than they do, because, you know, I have been talking, to them, you know, I've been looking at this company for a couple hours. They've been doing it for months. Then, then they're not serious about it, right? They don't know the market deeply enough. Right? I mean, I'm looking for people who are living their market, right? Who, who understand, you know, it's the uh, the caddyshack that be the ball. Well, I want them to be the ball. It's uh, sorry, that may be a old reference for some of your listeners. Um, but I, I, if they
0: haven't seen Caddyshack, we don't want them listening to the show anyway. If you, if, you, <laughs> right. if you
2: don't know Caddyshack,
0: uh, stop now, please,
2: listeners. <laughs> yeah, no, so that's not it. I want them to engage with me, right? So if on the other hand, and this happens also, people are stubborn. They're like, well, you know, you don't get it. You're just wrong. And, and I know that I'm not. Wrong. I may not be right, but I'm not wrong. That that's a that's a warning flag. Also, I want people who say, "Well, our research shows that you know this is true." It may not, in the end, end up being true. And if it's not true, then here's what we'll do to keep the company moving forward. Right? That, that's the perfect sort of answer because that's the reality of startup life.
0: I like it, and. How important is, how are you going to evaluate their, their prior track record? Uh, are you going to actually call around and validate some yeah. of the claims they're making? Cause
2: I, I do. see resumes all I, the
0: time and bios all the time that I find out later are full of BS.
2: Yeah. I mean, one of the, one of the things that helps me investing in a fairly narrow subset of companies is that, I usually know somebody they've worked for or has worked for them or has worked alongside them, or has invested in them, or something, right? And so I can call people and say, "Hey, you worked with this person. What do you think?" People never say bad things, but if they don't say great things, then that's probably a bad sign. Uh, but I do that with every founder. You know I, I try to find some way to to figure out from a personal connection who they really are. And I think that's you know you have, you have to, in the end. Be able to trust the people you invest in because there's so little that prevents them, anybody, if I give them money from just walking away with it or spending it and doing nothing, right? So if, if I don't trust that, that, that what they want to do is build a big company, that they're going to do it ethically, that they're going to keep my interests in mind as one of their partners, then I just won't invest.
0: Jerry, I could ask him for me or ask questions all day. Great information. A very valuable resource. How do we find out more? Follow you online and hit you up if we want to get some money for our enterprise software package that you know a lot of people who help write.
2: I, you know, I think LinkedIn is probably the best bet. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I would say Twitter or X or whatever they're calling it these days, but uh, I'm on there less nowadays. Um, You know, you can always uh, look at my blog's website, Reaction Wheel, um, so that you understand how I'm thinking about things. Uh, and, you know, buy the book and come up to me and ask me to sign it.
0: And founder VS foundervsinvestor.com as well, right?
2: Yeah, that's the book website. Yes. Exactly.
0: Jerry, thank you so much for being with us. Really great stuff and good stories. Appreciate it a lot.
2: Thanks, Jim. Great questions.
0: We're out of time, but you know what we do. That's right. We come back tomorrow. Be safe, everyone. Go make a million dollars. Bye now.